I remember being in my first year of college. It was a time I felt more confident and enlightened and like I knew more than perhaps any other time in my life. I left home at 17 and dove headlong into a broad new world of ideas, philosophy, science, history. And in a few months, I realized that there was so much folly in everything that I had learned before. The, they had, everything that had gone before in my mind it was uninformed and narrow-minded and wrong. My parents, the people who loved me, off base. Or so it seemed to me. As we all know, there are four years of high school and college, freshmen, sophomore, juniors, and seniors. And the name for a second year student is sophomore. It comes from the combination of two Greek words for wisdom and fool. It literally means a wise fool, someone who has learned just enough to become dangerous and arrogant. I think it's fitting that sophomores become juniors. You are a wise fool until you realize that you were a junior in your study and life. And only after you accept this position of humility can you adopt eventually a posture of being a senior in your studies. My experience as an 18 year old was just textbook. I was acquiring knowledge. Many of you might know the phrase knowledge is power and knowledge is indeed powerful. But especially in the beginning, it can also cloud our judgment and our appraisal of ourselves. When we know a little, we can feel like we know a lot. We can be sophomores, wise fools. And it would be safe to say that in the church in Corinth, there were a whole lot of sophomores in the gospel. You see, this church is not uninformed at all. In fact, they have been taught by Paul himself, and they have been baptized and set apart as members of the body of Christ. They have turned from many of their old pagan ways and gathered into this little diverse community. Now, Corinth is a very colorful place. It was a happening colony of Rome with the culture and money that comes with it. It was known as a place full of corrupt lawyers and various religious cults and philosophers. It was a worldly city in the full biblical sense of the term. The temples and worship of the Roman pantheon was notorious, and it touched every aspect of life in the city. Now, Paul comes in and he proclaims the truth of the gospel to the people of Corinth, and he summarizes it in verses 6 and 7. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all are all things and through whom we exist. So here's Paul's message. All these gods and lords are not, the, are not the Lord or the one true God in whom we live and move and have our being. They are powerful forces in the world that have rebelled against God. But the Lord has, in Jesus, overcome all of these false gods and opened up a path for us back to the one true God through his life, death, and resurrection. And furthermore, the stone idols that they have in these places are dumb and mute and powerless. 
You are not people ruled by those various imposters, these idols that fill temples around you. You are a people who are free from all of that because you have been united to Jesus in your bodies. Single, a single people knit together in the spirit of God. Now remember, when we read the letters included in the New Testament, we are, in a sense, reading somebody else's mail. And all throughout 1 Corinthians, we see evidence that Paul is dealing with very particular and strange issues. And man, are there issues in this church. The Corinthians know just enough to be dangerous. In so many situations, they have become impressed with their own knowledge concerning the things of God, and this arrogance manifests itself through many issues dividing the church. And you can see this all the way through, whether it's because they claim to follow Apollos or Paul, or some of them are living extra licentious lives, or some of them are being extremely uh, contained and constrained with the way they live their lives. All of this spreads from just enough knowledge to make them arrogant and pit them against one another. The specific issue at hand in chapter 8 concerns the eating of particular kinds of meat. Now, in other places in the New Testament record, we have the dispute between Jewish Christians uh, and first century Gentile Christians about eating meat that's not ceremonially clean or kosher. And sometimes chapter 8 can be confused with that issue. But remember, these are not Jews. These, the church in Corinth is a bunch of Gentiles, and this is not anything to do with Jewish food laws. You see, the temples in Corinth, they would perform animal sacrifices to various gods, to Apollo or Poseidon or a whole host of other gods. And the meat then from those sacrifices would be served in feasts or commonplace in, in different social events or even sold in the market. And this is where the problem comes, right? The wealthier uh, Corinthians would be obligated to attend parties and functions as a part of their daily life and work. And so, as not to offend their host, they would end up eating meat that had been sacrificed to those idols. And some of the poorer Corinthians, perhaps people who wouldn't have been invited to those same parties, seem to have equated this with idol worship. And the members who would be eating the meat in these social public functions would argue that the meat has no power over them because the idols are of stone and that Jesus has overcome all of these idols, that they are free to eat meat, whatever they want, as an expression of their freedom in Christ. And they want to, dis to settle this dispute once for all. So they, it seems that they have written to Paul and asked him to address this issue. But Paul's answer is incredibly surprising. Paul does not give a cut and dry decision on this. Instead, Paul pivots. He pivots back to the comparison between knowledge and love. The ones with ostensibly correct knowledge regarding the theology of eating meat do not know as they ought to know. They do not understand because they have not loved first. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Sure, you can have a clean conscience about eating, eating this meat, but the way you are exercising this knowledge against others in the community reveals a much deeper spiritual immaturity. 
They are wise fools. In chapter 13 of this same letter, Paul writes, If I speak in the tongue of men and angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but not love, I am nothing. I am nothing. Well, in chapter 8, this is the point. That the Corinthians think they know rightly, but they do not love, and thus they do not understand. The division they are causing by eating meat in the church is causing major strife. And so Paul says it is not so much an issue of the thing itself, but of caring for your brother and sister in Christ. I find the distinction between knowledge and understanding incredibly helpful. To know something is to have a kind of possession of the facts. It is something we control or obtain. We can know the Pythagorean equation and then have the ability to find the hypotenuse of a right triangle. We can know lots of facts about other people in the world around us. When we know things, we are in control or feel like we are in control. But understanding is different. To understand something is, uh, to understand to understand something, you do not possess or control it. The word says it all. To understand things, you have to stand under them. I always picture a tree. You can know all about beautiful acacia trees, the, the beautiful umbrella trees that you always see in pictures of Africa, and you can read about them and memorize their different properties. But you have to go stand under one to encounter it, to feel its shade, to know its smell, to know how the bark feels, how the little tiny ants run up and down it constantly. And if done over years, to be able to look at an acacia tree and say, that acacia tree is sick, or that acacia tree is flourishing but you are not in control of the tree in that instance. You are encountering it. You are learning from it. And understanding is a component of love. You can't simply know about someone. You simply can't know about someone if you're going to love them. To love, we have to encounter and to understand one another. Understanding leads to love. It makes it possible in our lives. And love, Paul tells us, builds up. It's edifying, literally. Now these Corinthians, they know Paul's theology that he's been teaching them, but they do not have the posture of humility and love necessary to understand it. And thus they do not know as they ought to know. Understanding requires that we be subjected to something. In this case, the Holy Spirit in the other. Knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Understanding is having the wisdom not to put it in a fruit salad. And this is not relegated to just the ancient world in any way. And on the surface, 
this text talks about something completely foreign to us, right? Though it might be more directly applicable to our brothers and sisters in other countries around the world. However, the very heart of this text about knowledge, community, understanding, and love are as poignant today as ever. You see, knowledge of God and theology is not something we possess. In fact, a classical definition of of theology is faith-seeking understanding. Sure, we can obtain knowledge of scripture and theology, but if you approach it the way you do a geometric equation, you are going to be a sophomore. God is not a subject we study, but the Lord whom we are subjected to. God is not a subject we study, but the Lord we are subjected to. We have to come to the Lord and to one another with the humility to know we are still learning to understand what God is calling all of us to be and do in love. And that is the most important message of 1 Corinthians 8. And I want to talk through what this could mean for us. Well, first, knowledge without humility is dangerous. It's intoxicating and often can leave wreckage in its wake. Now, there are many of us um, on this Zoom call, I usually would say in this room, but on this Zoom call as experts, right? We have degrees and titles that give us authority structurally and socially authority that we've worked our entire lives for. And that power can make us quick to think that we know the solution to complex problems or assume that we should be able to make the call on broad issues. But we should heed Paul. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. We must take the time, painful and inefficient as it might be at times, to understand, to love those we work with, and four, excellence requires understanding both in the church and in all the things we do in our life. So that's number one. Knowledge without humility is dangerous. Two, we must be attentive to one another. In Corinth, the persons who were upset about the meat eaten by their fellow Christians may not have taken the time to understand their hearts. The Christians who were eating meat were more concerned about being right than loving their brothers and sisters. And so both of them fall into this trap. And what a subtle snare. We must be willing not just to know each other, but to understand each other, which is hard. To come to one another in humility and love, to share with one another what we find offensive if necessary, and to listen to each other in good will. Three. It also provides some apt parallels for our modern life. My church in Rwanda struggled and continues to struggle with the ethics of alcohol consumption. Some who feel free to drink and others who do not feel comfortable doing so. And obviously in the United States and many of us in our own extended families and perhaps some of us in this church uh, might have that kind of interior conflict about drinking alcohol. To simply look at the scriptures, 
where Jesus, for instance, turns 180 gallons of water into wine and drinks with his friends, is not to do real justice to the complexity, the real complexity of this issue for communities, both here and around the world. If drinking causes a brother or sister to stumble, then don't do it. It's better to live in unity together. Now, that is less of an issue in our context, but there will be many more issues like this that arise. Just like Corinth, the pressure to navigate a secular pagan world is highest among those who are professionals and have social status. And as our culture becomes more antagonistic to the Christian faith, some of us will have to navigate our own work and social environments very, very carefully. We must learn in our own life how to be innocent as doves and wise as serpents. How we use pronouns in email signature lines or what corporate institutional policies we promote or follow or sign on to will be very difficult questions going forward now and in the next years to come. We have to seek both freedom in Christ and bear with one another in love. It can be all too easy, like I was when I was a freshman or sophomore in college, to be impressed with our own knowledge. And the devil is very happy for us to know all the right things, all the right procedures, all the right policies, all the right ways to think about things, all the right facts, and to understand none of them. He's happy for us to, to be in that place, especially because knowledge builds pride and division among us. Pride and division are also signs of evil. And when we find them beginning to grow in our own hearts, we have to repent and pull them up by the root. Because understanding one another requires our love. To move toward someone, to be subjected to them and to the Lord together. Otherwise, we're sophomores. We are fools who are only wise in our own minds. So, it is once again the importance and centrality of love that will determine our common life together, how we move forward as a community under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Lord, we are your people. Lord, we love you. And yet, Lord, even in the places that we have the greatest knowledge, we also are so deeply susceptible to not being people of love and understanding. I pray that this church, Church of the Cross, be one committed to understanding one another, to having patience with one another as we navigate the difficult circumstances of our life and world together. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.